All right, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 will be in verses 15 through 21. We'll finish out this chapter today as we look at justification by faith. Justification by faith. As we look at this passage together, we'll see this central idea that faith in Christ produces new life lived in Christ. Faith in Christ produces new life lived in Christ. So Galatians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 15. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now this paragraph introduces us to one of the key concepts in all of God's word, and certainly in our Christian lives. Justification by faith. So we find this word justification three times in verse 16, then again in verse 17, and then a noun translated as righteousness, same root word in verse 21. So justification is the central truth that's being communicated here. This paragraph serves as a sort of statement for framing the overall argument of the book. In other words, Paul says, we aren't justified by our works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If you were giving a proposition for the entire book of Galatians, that's one way to look at it. We're not justified by our works, but through faith in Christ. Now, justification is the opposite of condemnation. In other words, if you walk into a court of law and you stand before a judge and you are guilty and the judge finds you guilty, he says guilty. That's condemnation. Justification is the opposite. You walk into that court of law and the judge looks at you and he says, not guilty. Now in this case, as it works in salvation, we know the reality is we are all sinners by birth. In other words, we walk into that courtroom and we are guilty. But what justification does is the ju God the judge looks at us and he declares us not guilty. But it even goes a step further than that because he says not only are we not guilty in his sight... He says we are as righteous as Jesus is righteous. In other words, there is a crime, treason committed against the holy creator of the universe. We walk into the courtroom, the throne room of God, and God should look at us and say, guilty, depart from me, I never knew you. But instead he looks at us and he says, welcome, my child. That's not something we can earn, it's something that's credited to us through faith in Christ. It's what we call justification by faith. It's to declare righteous someone who is not righteous. And justification by faith has been the battle cry of the church since it began, but certainly became in a renewed, focused way in the Protestant Reformation. A man by the name of Martin Luther sort of championed this in the 16th century. 
Luther writes of justification, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. I love Luther's gentle pastoral way here. You can imagine being in his church, can't you? Beat it into their heads continually. What he's saying is, you can't miss this. If you miss this, you miss what it means to actually be a Christian. Now, in this paragraph, Paul is making a conversational and theological transition. If you remember last week, he confronted Peter for refusing to eat with the Gentiles. And then he said, what's so wrong about that, Peter, is you are walking out of step with the gospel. And so he said, here's what happened. And now in this paragraph, he's giving us the theological reasons, the underpinnings, why that was so wrong. Why it was so bad for Peter to do that. And he starts with a bit of sarcasm. And so he's going to tell us how it is the gospel works in verses 15 and 16. So verse 15 highlights an issue of identity for the early Jewish Christians. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Since God formed the Jews through Abraham in Genesis, a Jew's physical birth was the most important thing about his primary identity. You see, to be born a Jew is to be born to privilege. In fact, you might go so far as to say in a Jew's eyes, to be born a Jew is to be born righteous, to be born within the law. You see, Jews are born under the law and live within the law. Gentiles, on the other hand, are born outside the law and live outside the law. So therefore, the law, God's law, is a boundary between Jews and Gentiles. And in Jewish eyes, you can't break this boundary. It acts as a barrier. So in verse 15, Paul is emphatic. He says, we ourselves, we're Jews by birth. We are the good people. We're the people born under the law, within the law. So here he identifies himself, after he rebukes Peter, he identifies himself with Peter and with the group he called the circumcision party. We're the Jews. We're good. We're God's chosen people. We're the good ones. We're within the law. And then he uses what is probably a derogatory term for Gentiles. We're not like those people. We're not like those Gentile sinners, he calls them. Whew, it's a good thing we're Jews and not like them. But the difficulty is that our heritage, our physical birth, don't actually make us right with God. You see, the Jews are born, and, and they live in this world, and they think, I'm Jewish by birth, and therefore I'm born in a right relationship with God. And Paul comes, and he says, no, your heritage can't fix you. We're not made right with God by our heritage. You could be born inside the law as the Jew, and yet a lawbreaker in your heart. Because in verse 16, a person is not justified by works of the law. So theoretically, if you were a really good law keeper, it wouldn't help anyway. Now, we're not Jews, but we do understand the aspect of citizenship. In fact, it's a hot topic in our culture, and it has been for a number of years. How is it that someone becomes a citizen of the United States? Well, one way this happens is by birth. In other words, if you are born 
two citizens of the United States or you are born within the United States, you are a citizen by birth. There's no process to go through. You get this handed to you. But what Paul is saying here is there isn't a physical birth into justification. In other words, you could be born to Christian parents, but that's not the same as yourself entering God's kingdom through faith in Christ. Now you might say, oh, we know that. But the Southeast United States is full of Christians who aren't actually Christians. People who are American by birth. Southern by the grace of God. Christian because we're blessed. Hashtag blessed. But Christianity isn't a culture primarily. It isn't something you're born into. When you could be born to Christian parents, you could be raised in a Christianized culture, but not right with God. So if we're not born into righteousness, how is it that it comes to us? Well, Paul answers the second question. It's not by good works. You could be a good law-abiding citizen and not right with God. Verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So even if theoretically you could keep the law, it can't save you. So we talked about citizenship. There are those who are born citizens of the United States. But we also have what we call naturalized citizens. In other words, they're people that travel here or come here through legal means, and there's a process by which they can become citizens. In fact, the U.S. government outlines a 10-step process that you have to go through to become a naturalized citizen of the United States. So in the first place, Paul says Jews by birth, they're not right with God. You can't become a citizen of God's kingdom by birth. But then he says, secondly, there's not really a process that you can do to make yourself a citizen. You can't, by good works, by keeping the law, make yourself right with God. I mean, three times in verse 16 alone, Paul says, you cannot be justified by the works of the law. So no matter how faithful you are, you can't be faithful enough. No matter how good you are, you can't be good enough. Well, how is this? James 2.10 puts it this way. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all of it. Now how can this be? I mean, I could murder but not commit adultery or covet but not steal. You see, the law of God doesn't work like a bunch of separate pockets. What we have is one God giving one law. And his law reveals his will for moral upright character that reflects his goodness and so the law is more like a chain than it is a bunch of separate commands and if you break one link in this eternal chain of God's character you are guilty of violating the eternal character of God of breaking the whole chain we all have parts of God's word that we lean into in parts that we like parts that sort of flow with us in our nature But we all have parts that we don't like so much or parts we find less tasteful that are a little harder for us. I mean, some of us are real into doing things right. I mean, you got to buy straight, straighten up, do it right. There's a good way, doing things decently and in order. But things like mercy ministry, graciousness, lavish kindness that sometimes feels crazy, they don't come easy to us. Now, others of us, on the other hand, lean into mercy. Give, give, give. Nice, nice, nice. It's all grace, empathy, and niceness. 
But we fail to reckon with the fact that biblical love, God's love, is actually also a disciplining, truthful love. And then what do we do? Well, we all gossip about the people who don't like to do it like we do. You know, they're not like us, they don't do it right, or they're not like us, they're not lice like us. I mean, who here has loved God with his whole heart? His neighbor, like himself? The law is a whole, and it reflects the character of God. No one is justified by keeping the law. So if this is true, how can we be declared righteous in the sight of God? Paul says it's not by our heritage, it's not by good works, it is by faith in Christ. Verse 16 again, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Eternal God become a true human being. He lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived. All these links in the chain, he kept them all. He didn't break a single one. And the life that he lived earned the right to eternal life. But Jesus, as you know, died. He didn't die for his law breaking. He died for ours. He died the death that we should die. Because the penalty for breaking God's law is death. So because Jesus is human, he died. But because Jesus is God, he didn't stay dead. As we sung a few moments ago, we have a living hope, a Savior, who lay there dead in that grave but rose again. And by coming back to life, he grants life to anyone who comes to faith in him. And the way to this life is to admit your sin, to admit your inability, to stop this, this idea of self-reliance. It's, it's stepping out of the unstable boat of leaning on yourself, a sinking ship that will go down. The great reality facing us all is that death is coming for every one of us. On Friday, I did a funeral for a 97-year-old man. And later that day, we got a text about a dear friend of ours in her 40s who had been diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. You see, it doesn't matter if you're very young or very old. Death comes to all of us. We get a short life to live. And the only hope we have is to step out of this sinking boat. They all end up in the same place and into the sure, reliable person that is Jesus Christ. He is someone who can bear the weight of our questions, who can bear the weight of our frailty, of our hopelessness. Oh, friend, if you are here apart from Christ, would you lean in to Christ and him alone for salvation? You aren't justified because you're born into some sort of Christian culture. You're not justified because you can be good. You can only be justified in God's sight through faith in Christ. Would you trust him today? But you see, this isn't the end. Placing faith in Christ is the beginning of a lifelong relationship through faith in God in Jesus Christ. But this life isn't without peril. Paul also tells us how the gospel is attacked, verses 17 to 18. So here we get a glimpse into the attacks Paul is receiving. He responds to his opponents in verse 17. In order to be justified in Christ, if we too were found to be sinners, then is Christ a servant of sin. Now the way Paul phrases this, it can be a little bit difficult to track, but he's attacking a heresy, a heresy known as antinomianism, antinomianism against the law. And this heresy says that if justification is by faith, then it doesn't matter what we do. You can throw it all off. God has no expectations for your life. Anyone can live like they want because God has nothing to do with it. We can break the law. It doesn't matter. We're justified. 
And if you think about it just logically speaking, like if you actually set God's word aside for a moment, he has a point. I mean, if it doesn't matter what we do, can't we just sit and not worry about it? Well, if salvation is merely a quick ticket out of hell and means nothing else, then yes. So you get your ticket and you can do whatever you want. Murder, got my ticket. Adultery, oh, I got my ticket. Gossip, oh, this ticket's good for that. Tax evasion, no problem. Slander, if it's just a ticket, can't we pray a prayer and live like we want? Well, let's check out the end of verse 17. Certainly not, Paul says. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So if I live like that, I'm actually the person I'm saying I'm not. The ticket doesn't say whether I am. The way I live shows whether I have the ticket. So what's Paul getting at? When our legal status changes, not guilty, righteous, our inner character changes too. We're a new creation in Christ. English pastor John Stott put it this way. Justification is not a legal fiction in which a man's status is changed while his character is left untouched. In other words, you cannot separate justification from conversion and sanctification without losing justification. You can't separate placing faith in Christ from a life of faith in Christ without losing the act of faith in Christ. It's all one. Christ saved us, is saving us, and will save us eternally. And if you remove any part of the link of the chain, you lose the whole thing. So it's like this. A hardened, character, a hardened uh, criminal enters a courtroom. And the judge, this judge, has the power not only to declare this criminal not guilty. With spoken word, he can also change his heart. You see, we walk into the courtroom of God, and God says not guilty through Christ. But then he also, through Christ, changes our heart. He converts us through repentance and faith. He has the power to change what is inside us. So how does it work? Verse 17, we are justified in Christ. In other words, Christ is now our orienting reality. It's not Joshua, it's not us, it's not this world. We live in Christ. We're united to Christ and we live our life in Christ. Now this is far superior to what, what's come before the Old Covenant. Actually, Paul says, verse 18, to rebuild what was torn down, in other words, to go back to living under the law, to live under the law is actually to become a transgressor, a lawbreaker. Now, okay, this doesn't really make sense, right? Paul says, if I live under the law, then I'm a lawbreaker. What's he arguing? So, remember, Paul is talking to professing Christians who argue that you need Jesus plus something. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus good works. And so what he says is when you come to Jesus, you set aside all these other things and you get just Christ, just Jesus, Jesus plus nothing. So to set Jesus aside and say, well, yes, I trust Christ, but I also need this, is to turn around and go back to the old way of life to seek to justify yourself. Christ is the point of the law. 
And so Christ here, this moment with Christ, to go back to living under the law is to transgress, to cross, to break the law of Christ. Faith in Christ is the point of all this. And so ironically, being good to save yourself is actually to become a transgressor. Now there are three uses of the law in God's word. Going to get a little, uh, little lesson here. Pedagogical, civil, moral. Pedagogical, it's a big word, but you can hear in there the word pedagogy. It means to teach. So the first use of the law is that God teaches us through the law that we need Christ. In other words, the law reveals to us, it's like a mirror, it shows us how sinful we are. Uh, Paul said in Romans, if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't have known necessarily that I was a coveter. But because God said don't covet, now I know in my heart, I'm a coveter, I'm a sinner. So the law reveals to us, it teaches us that we need Christ. The second use of the law is what we call the civil use of the law. Now this use of the law is God's way of restraining evil. In other words, there's a law in God's word that says don't steal. That restrains evil. It's like on your way here this morning, some of y'all running a little bit late. Now, you might have driven fast, but you would have driven faster even if there hadn't been a speed limit. See, the speed limit restrains how fast you go. And God's law restrains the evil impulses in men. So there's this law, don't steal, and it restrains evil. But the third use of the law is moral. It shows us, in other words, God's will for reflecting his holy character. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's moral will. So we've got these three uses of the law in Scripture. Pedagogical, it teaches us we need Christ. Civil, it restrains evil. And moral, it shows us how we are to live. So look down for a few verses to the end of Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Galatians 3, 23. Paul is going to tell us how he is using the law here. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so then... The law was our guardian until Christ came, or, as the good old King James translates it, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law was our teacher. So the law not only restrains evil, it leads us to Jesus Christ. So, same thing, Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no, un, no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words... To go back to the law not only undermines the gospel, it actually undermines the point of the law itself. Because the law doesn't exist for itself. Why, Paul says, does the law exist? The law is a teacher to teach you that you need Jesus. And so if you don't recognize that you need Jesus, you are actually breaking the whole point of the law. The law can condemn you, but it cannot save you. It's only through faith in Christ. The law points us to Christ. So Paul, Paul takes these people's own ideas about the law and destroys them, and then he tells us what it is the gospel produces. Now verses 19 through 21 introduce us to another key doctrine. And frankly, this is not teaching I was taught well growing up. There is a lot of gospel basic truth that I was taught well, but this isn't something I remember hearing. But this often neglected truth is an essential truth, and the doctrine is our union with Christ. By placing our faith in Christ, 
we become one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So when Christ died, we died. When Christ, Christ was buried, we were buried with him in baptism. When Christ was raised, we were raised. Romans 6 is probably the clearest and lengthiest explanation of this, but it's key to understanding what Paul is saying here. As the gospel unites us to Christ, it unites us to his death. So verses 19 and 20 mix metaphors a little bit here. Paul's going fast, and so he says, Through the law, I died to the law. And then he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ, that's pretty clear. Dead to the law, that's less clear. So our crucifixion with Christ, when Christ hung on that cross and died... What God's word tells us is when we place our faith in Christ, God hung our old nature on that cross and killed it. So when Christ died, that sinful part of us dies too. And scripture says, when we die, we die to sin, Romans 6. To the spiritual forces of this world, Colossians 2. And here in Galatians 2, to the law. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is helpful here. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Sin gets power from the law. The law gives sin the authority to condemn us. In other words, if God says, love your neighbor as yourself, and you don't do it because you're a sinner, the law gives sin the authority to condemn you. The law gives sin power. For sinners, what does the law bring? Condemnation, guilt, death. So if we die to the power of sin, we also die to the power of the law. The law is no longer our judge because Christ has declared us righteous. Christ has been judged for our sin. And Christ has delivered us from the power of sin. Or as Romans 6.14 puts it, sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. If you live under law, sin has power because you're a sinner. But if you're in Christ, sin has no power because you are under grace. Spiritually speaking, when Christ was nailed to that cross, so were we. Our old nature in that moment, when we're nailed to that cross, The law which has power over us because of our sin becomes powerless. It's like this. I normally don't keep my wallet in my pocket when I preach because I don't love my pockets full, but I I kept it here this morning. It'd be like this if you were a thief, imagine, and you came and you took my wallet. And you went running out the back door and I yelled out, stop thief. Now you know we have a uniformed officer here on the campus. He hears that, he runs and he tackles you. And he finds in your hand my wallet. Now the sad news for you is there is no money in this wallet. But you got the wallet, so you're guilty. And what happens in the gospel is Christ comes to us. We're the thief, we're the lawbreaker. And this sin is ours. And he takes this sin. And he bears it for us. Now, he's not the thief. But the thief is discovered with wallet in hand. And Christ takes the wallet and says, I'll take this one. I've got the wallet. It's mine. Judge me instead. Christ stands and says, I'm the thief. Now, Christ didn't steal from anybody. 
but he takes the sin and the penalty for our sin and, and, and bears it in our place. Or as Isaiah 53 puts it, the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Christ now bears the penalty for our sin. Christ now is the lawbreaker. Christ now is condemned. Christ is guilty. And we're sitting over here. We're the thief. We took the wallet, but we got no wallet. Christ has the sin and the condemnation and the guilt that goes with it. Christ's righteousness to us. And that's what happens in our union with Christ. We die and our sin is placed on him. Brothers and sisters, it's not just an act of faith in Christ. It is that, but the power and penalty of sin are obliterated at the cross. You're no longer under condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ in spite of the fact that y'all are a bunch of thieves. In Christ, you are righteous. And so the gospel also produces new life in Christ. Since we died on that cross, Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it's no longer Joshua running around. It's Christ running around in me. It's no longer you running around. It's Christ living in you. Well, how in the world does this work? Verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is speaking on two levels. The first is the physical level. The life, he says, I live in the flesh. In other words, we still live and breathe and move and have physical life. You, on the outside, your physical appearance looks the same. And every human being shares life on this physical level. We're all physically alive, but there is a second level, a spiritual level. The life we live by faith, the life we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, it's absolutely ridiculous to say that faith in Christ could lead to law-breaking. We can't go back to the old way of life because Christ is the perfect law keeper and Christ lives in us. We cannot be guilty. So on the one hand, you could say we live through faith in Christ. And on the other hand, you could say Christ lives through us. It's this beautiful indwelling. And if Christ lives in you, you want life. You want holiness. You want Christ-likeness. You want to be like God. You want God himself. Verse 16 it's faith in Christ. Verse 20, it's Christ in me. So we live our lives in Christ and Christ lives in us. So Paul concludes in verse 21, faith in Christ doesn't nullify the grace of God because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, righteousness can't come through good works. It can only come through Christ. Well, let's take a look for a minute. Look down in your Bibles at the flow of the first person pronouns, verses 15, 16, 17. We are Jews. We know. We have believed. Our endeavor. We were found to be sinners. Now look at verse 18 through 21. I rebuild. I tore down. I proved myself. I died. I might live. I have been crucified. I who live. Christ who lives in me. The life I live. I live by faith. Who loved me. Gave himself for me. Paul moves from talking theoretically 
about all us Jews, and then he gets scandalously personal. He's audacious in his claims to what Christ has done. You see, as long as the gospel sits out there on the shelf, it's something I read about in the Word of God. It's something that God did. As long as the gospel sits here in a pew, it's something we hear about at church. It's something the preacher says. As long as the gospel sits somewhere in our past, it's something that happened to me at VBS when I was a teen, when I was at camp, when I was a child, when I was an adult. It's something that happened in the past. As long as it sits out there, it doesn't affect us in here. And Paul says the gospel isn't something you leave there. It's something that's audaciously and boldly personal. It's something that God does to you and God does in you. If it sits on the shelf, it's failing to impact your life in the way that God says it should. The gospel for Christians looks less like something that merely happened in the past. Although if you are a Christian, that's true. It does include that. But it looks today much more like something that impacts your life in the present. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear that? It's something Paul lives now. It's not something in the past. It's now. Oh, it happened in the past, or Paul was on the road to Damascus, but it's his life today. Every moment, every breath, every reality, it's Christ. He wants, he lives, he breathes Christ. The past experience becomes our present reality. You see, the act of placing faith in Christ becomes a life lived through Christ. And it comes to us by faith. The life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. So if this is true, how could this change the way our church relates to one another? So our union with Christ, we're one with Christ, means that when we gather together, there are people we can see in the room, but we're not the only ones here. Christ is here. Christ is in us. Christ lives through us. Now, we get that maybe with corporate worship, maybe. But we often tend to separate our worship from the rest of church life. I mean, you can sense this in the way we converse or fear or question one another in meetings. But what if the next time a tricky situation that comes up in a business meeting or a family meeting, what if in that moment we experienced this reality. We didn't lean into our natural response. We leaned into this truth. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And rather than sensing, fixating on fears or frustrations, we leaned into this life in Christ, into our union with Christ, and we prayed, God, Christ lives in me. May others see Christ in me. This could change the way our church does business. The way our church relates to difficult decisions, relates to one another. Okay, fine, that's where maybe this can help us as a church, but what about us personally? Now, anxiety, worry comes to all of us at one level or another. There's not one person, no matter how confident, type A, extroverted, whatever you are, but it lives with some of us as a different kind of, burden. 
For some of us, anxiety isn't something we experience occasionally. It's an ever-present shadow. And the shadow is always there. It's like low-hanging clouds on a dark day. But sometimes the shadow comes so close that we can't see anything but the shadow. We can't feel anything but our fear, but the darkness, the sadness, the anxiety. And in that moment, when it creeps in on you and comes so close, you can't see anything else. What if you remember that you are dead to sin, dead to the spiritual forces of this world, and you live by faith in Christ who loved you and gave himself for you? Christ experienced darkness and separation so you don't have to. Has the Lord not said he will never leave you or forsake you? The, do, the idea that we have to succumb to this inner darkness is a lie. The truth is we live life in Christ. And we can believe the truth by faith that Christ has conquered sin. Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered hell. And Christ has conquered this darkness too. And in him we have hope. So, how do we bridge that gap between our perceived experience, the anxiety, the fear, the hopelessness, the despair, the darkness? That's all I feel. And Christ. Well, Paul gives us the answer. We live by faith. Faith bridges the gap between our perceived experience, a very real experience, and the reality that Christ has declared. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we have new life in Christ. Life in Christ is the great reality, not this darkness. So our experience does matter, but it pales in power in comparison to the resurrection power that is ours through Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ died, so did you. But when Christ rose, so did you. Therefore, sin has no power. Let's reckon, consider ourselves to be alive to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this can work for anxiety. This can work for lust. This can work for anger, pride, fear. Who we are in Christ. You are one with Christ, dead to sin, alive to God through Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you for the death of Christ in our place. But God, I thank you that he lives and we live through him and he lives through us. God, help us live the life we live by faith in him, the one who gave himself for us. 
Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know the resurrection power of Christ because they don't know Christ. I pray that they would trust him today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.